welcome to episode 117 of Running Matters Podcast. I'm your host, Paul Hadfield, and today I have the pleasure of chatting with President of the Trail Running Association of Queensland, or TRAC, uh, Mr. Mike Duggan. Now, Mike is a passionate trail runner and has done some amazing things across the globe in sport. He's uh, completed the UTMB 100-mile race. He's got himself a silver buckle at the Western States 100-mile multiple uh, 100k and 100 mile races around Australia. He's, he's, he's done and seen most of the things that trail runners aspire to. But the most exciting thing to talk with Mike about is uh, the grassroots campaign that he's heading up to try to see trail running at the 2032 Brisbane Olympic Games. Uh, and we get to chat about the process and, and what that might look like in terms of the event um, and, and the boxes that they need to tick to, to make sure that that happens and uh, the people that they need to get in front of to push trail running to cause and, and get it to the Games. So lots of exciting stuff to come and, uh, yeah, some great stuff to talk about, the state of play in trail running in Queensland and across Australia. Uh, and, and Mike's an incredibly passionate uh, yeah, businessman and, and, and trail runner, so we, we get to talk about a whole bunch of that stuff. Now, before we get started, I'd like to thank our podcast partners, Ranala, Raid Light, Fractel, Guy Me Allied Health, Basecamp Altitude, Goo Energy, Cronulla Beer Co., Running Matters Coaching, and Coda Nutrition. And without further ado, we'll get Mike on the line. Enjoy. Okay, welcome to the show, Mike Duggan. How are you, mate? I'm doing very well, Paul. Thanks for having me on the show, mate. Yeah, no, not, not a problem. Great great to meet you up at Blackhall the other week. Yeah, it was fantastic. You came through 72 kilometres strong. Uh, you know, you're looking looking super tough. And I had the easy job of just sitting back, feeding your lollies and making sure you still had enough water to keep going to the next checkpoint. <laughs> Mate, it's amazing how um, deceptive looks can be at that point. You know, I'm, <laughs> I'm sure I was hurting well and truly by that stage. <laughs> there were There were a lot of people hurting on that day. It was humid. You know, it was pretty full on. The course is super tough with a few of the little changes of the last few years. So now you guys did, you did really well. And trust me, it, um, you know, kind of almost midnight that night when we were about ready to pack up and there's still the last person coming through at the sweepers close behind them. You know, that person was, was tough and that person was hurting. Yeah. You know, a lot of respect for those type of runners. Yeah. You, you forget just how uh, tough it must be to be on your feet for that length of time. It's truly impressive. Yeah. Absolutely incredible stuff, but it's good. You had a good time and I saw you rang the bell at the end. I saw some great photos, which means you, uh, you accomplished your main goal on the day, which is get it done. Something to be said about ringing that bell will definitely drag you home a little bit quicker than uh, yeah some other races I've done. Hundred percent, absolutely. And, and so it seems to be a pretty amazing uh, community of people up there in Queensland trail running. It was an amazing event, and and so incredibly well supported by the communities around it. You, you must notice that being being amongst that environment. Uh, absolutely, I think um, one thing. And, and that environment is something that I've, I've been part of for quite a few years. I've been lucky enough to, to run Black Hole, but then also, you know, be part of the volunteering community with um, the Trail Running Association of Queensland. And um, just the strength of the volunteering community and the passion that, which they bring to, you know, all the things that they do to support races is just amazing. You just, you get stunned by the smiles on the faces of these volunteers dressed up in, you know, all kinds of gear from your Hawaiian suits through to your, you know, vampires and, and uh, creatures and ghouls for the Halloween 
famed checkpoints. And, the, you know, these people bring such energy to the races that just carry runners home. So it's, a, it's an amazing community to be part of, not just on the running side, but also on the, um, the volunteering side. Yeah, certainly. I, I was a little bit concerned when the first volunteer I saw was wearing a Grim Reaper outfit, but um, I, after I saw a couple of trail fairies, I, I was okay to carry on. <laughs> Only in trail running do you get to have a Grim Reaper and trail fairies within you know a kilometre of each other. So it's almost <laughs> cruel, but uh, funny at the same time. It was definitely funny, definitely. Uh, and so, so, Mike, talking about uh, track or the Trail Running Association of Queensland, you 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 are the president of the organisation. Um, can you can you talk me through, I guess, what the objective of uh, of track is? Yeah, so we've um, we've uh, you know over the years, I think, and I'll give you a little bit of history. Track started well before me, obviously, back in in kind of the the noughties around two thousand and seven, where it um, where it was really probably very much focused on bringing the community together, but then realized that there wasn't a big trail running scene, organized races around particularly Southeast Queensland and uh, track formed some of the very first races that are, are now, you know, um, very well known uh, races such as, you know, the Glasshouse series up in, up in the Sunshine Coast and many of the races like Pinnacles and Mount Glorious around, um, around Brisbane. And over the years, it, it really morphed into a bit of a trail running and event type organization. But in the past, probably about five years, um, and an amazing committee of which I've been very lucky to be, be part of over a number of, of those years, about six years in total now, um, have really started to focus back into the development of care and support for the trail running community. And that, that is really our, our key um, objective as an organization is to provide that care and support for the whole trail running community, which includes everyone from the volunteers that support the races right through to the racing directors and even, even the peak organizations like um, Queensland Ath- Athletics uh, and some of the, you know, the land managers like Southeast Queensland Water that, um, you know, really want to work with us to put on great races and, and have to be, you know, part of the, uh, part of the uh, you know, um, the, the uh, I guess the, the, not just the challenge, but also the, um, you know, the, ex- the exploration of those, those special spaces um, and are, you know, key to being part of our, our races all over Queensland. Yeah, okay. And, and so I guess is the overarching idea to get all trail races coming through trail racing uh, through track eventually? No, I, I don't think so. I think um, it was actually I can say unequivocally no. I think for us, we're, we're not trying to be um, kind of a central point for, for races to you know, progress through or you know, be affiliated with. What we're, what we're there to do is to make sure that the whole community of trail running, which includes the race directors and the and the authorities and the volunteers and the the runners themselves really have the best experience, um, the safest experience, the most supportive experience on the trails, uh, you know, around Queensland. So our, our role really is is an ad, is for you know advocacy, um, for support, and for ensuring that um, you know the strongest trail running community can be built across the entire state. Yeah. Okay. Fantastic. Um, and, and look, I guess before you entered uh, this role as an advocate, ambassador, president, etc., um, you know you, you've got your own running background there. So can you take us back a few steps and uh, let us know where this amazing accent comes from for a start? <laughs> yeah, that's right. I'm not uh, certainly not born and bred in in Australia. I've been here for about 23 years, so I've lived over over half my life here now. I'm moving over in, in 1999. But back in Canada, you know, I spent a, a lot of my life in the outdoors. I grew up in a small town in country rural Ontario outside of the capital. Um, spent a lot of time canoeing, fishing, hiking. I was a downhill ski racer. So, uh, you know, the, the ski seasons were, you know, kind of my holy grail for getting out there on the mountains just about every 
every ounce of the the day and the week that I could. Um, but I found a real love for obviously for being in the outdoors. And um, I was very lucky to have a father who was very connected to the outdoors and, you know, spent a lot of time in, in a canoe and taught me how to canoe. And, uh, you know, I got a chance to kind of really explore and, and, um, and find a, a real affinity for being in our natural spaces. Um, I came to Australia and, and I realized that not only can I be in those natural spaces in, in the warmth for six months of the year, like Canada, but I can actually do it for 12 months of the year. And I didn't have to put a snowsuit on to um, jump on a, on a, on a mountain and ski down it. Um, but I missed the mountains and I missed, you know, being able to fly down a ski slope. And I found that in trail running. Um, and I got, a, I mean, I got the opportunity to do some cross country and I moved through kind of half marathons and, and uh, marathon road races for a number of years after, after, you know, kind of moving to Australia. Um, but when I hit the trails, it was like everything turned into a ski slope for me. Um, and I was, when I was ripping down hills, I was just seeing white and, you know, like I was hitting moguls as I flew, flew down those hills. So for me, trail running almost became a, a bit of a surrogate for um, the skiing life that I grew up in and, and um, you know, and the outdoors life that I love to live um, when I'm not in an office working on a computer. Oh, fantastic. It's, yeah, it, it's, it's great to get out of that little box. That's for sure. And, and, and so am I to assume that uh, when you are bombing those downhills, you, you're hitting them pretty hard. <laughs> yeah, I do. I do love to hit a downhill. That's one of my, probably one of my favorite things. I got a, I got a couple of crowns still hanging around, uh, hanging around, um, you know, Strava crowns hanging around this, the place. And I'm sure a few people will find those and try and chase them down. I, I actually have a hill right around the corner from me. I've got um, Camp Mountain, which is um, uh, actually been nicknamed by some of the guys that I run with in one of the running groups, Mose Michelle, because I, I spend so much time going up and down this thing because uh, it's just, you know, a kilometer away from me. That um, you know they've uh, they've given me the respect to let me stamp their passports as they come over and run on it, um, but there's a particular uh, Strava crown I had on there that got taken off me about three years ago, um, and I've never never been more dirty about it because it was about a two and a half minute um, you know reduction in my in my best time down that hill, and I swear if I, I I'm going to find that person I'm sure they were on a bicycle because there's no way they could go down that hill in that kind of time, but one day I'll be back and uh, the Camp Mountain Summit to. Uh, um, to the uh, to the main road there will be uh, will be mine again. Will be yours, mate. I said just just flagging them straight away and being done with it. <laughs> That's a good point. That's a good point. I've stayed away from the flags just you know because you don't want to be that guy. But maybe I should troll troll them and flag them. Oh, mate, I'm all for it. Get stuck in. <laughs> <laughs> and look, look how how did uh, this this outdoor nature make its way into I guess ultra trail running? Yeah, well, I think. I think what, um, well, actually, here's the story. I mean, the honest story is my very first ultra marathon was actually a road ultra marathon. And it was the Gold Coast Super Marathon, 100Ks. Um, at that time, it was run from uh, Burley Heads uh, out 25K. And you did, uh, you know, a repeat of that, basically, for your, for, your 100, for your 100K. And that was my very first one. And effectively, how I got into that was I was running with a, I'd moved up to Gladstone. And um, I've got uh, family in the Gladstone region, Gladstone Bundaberg. And uh, my wife and kids, we moved up there for a few years. And a mate of mine that I met up there was a ultra marathoner who had done the North Face 100 back in about 2013. And um, he ran a company up there and he said, Mike, look, if you, well, I'd love to raise money for, for a great cause. And um, if you'd like to raise money for that, um, I'd love to sponsor you, but you're going to have to run your first 100K to um, be part of this part of this deal. So I started training uh, beyond the marathon and um got through my first hundred K and realized that I absolutely hated running that distance on the road. Couldn't, could not stand it just, you know, pounding along the pavement. Um, so I said to, to my mate, Anton, I said, look, 
you, you did the North Face, um, you know, what was that like? And he said, you know, give it a go. And so in 2015, I, I did um, uh, what was the, North, the last year of the North Face 100 before it became uh, Ultra Trail Australia and absolutely loved it. Just fell in love with the distance, the challenge, the camaraderie of being out on the trails for that long. Um, and, you know, just, just the, the lengths that you could take your body and your mind to over that distance. And that was it. Then I was, I was hooked and I could just want to do everything over 42.2 Ks on the trails. Yeah. Fantastic. And, and, and you clearly did get the bug pretty, uh, pretty heavily because in the subsequent years, you, you've certainly ticked off a couple of the gigantic monuments of trail running across the globe. So it's only probably a couple of years later, you were getting stuck into uh, ultra tour de Mount Blanc hundred miler. So pretty steep learning curve after that first hundred K trail. Yeah, it was, it was, I set, um, I like to set myself some pretty big goals in life. And I've, you know, I've done that kind of consistently in personal and work and, and um, you know, probably my pursuits, pursuits outside of that in, in athletics and running. Um, and so I, I heard about this UTMB and, and thought this sounds absolutely amazing. And the only way to get there really is to, you know, really test yourself out on the, on the trails on a hundred miler to make sure you're kind of ready to do it. So I signed up for this one called Yu Yang's, which um, I took a look at and I went, you know, it's nothing like UTMB. It's a profile for, you know, distance to, um, to vertical is something like 20, 20 meters per kilometer as opposed to the 45 to 50 that is UTMB. So well, I'll give it a go. You know, it's a, I'll, it'll get me through the hundred miler and help me qualify. Um, learned a wicked lesson that day uh, in about 50 Ks um, or less. I, uh, my hamstring, I'd come in a bit sore in the hamstring. My hamstring really went and um, I definitely had a tear and uh, you know, I had to make a decision as to whether I was going to drop out or whether I was going to try and finish and I was lucky enough to have a great supporter, a volunteer there that was um, that was supporting me on the day. And he gave me a set of poles, which was my first time I'd use poles. He was a hiker. And um, he said, just get it done. And so I then kind of hiked uh, 110 Ks and finished a lot slower than I wanted to. But I, I had about an hour and a half before um, the cutoff that um, gave you points to get into UTMB at that time. So um, I managed to get it done. And uh, if I hadn't, I wouldn't have qualified for UTMB for 2017. And uh, who knows, I may never, never have ended up there. But um, I did. And I learned some more lessons on the trails around uh, Mont Blanc for sure. Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm good, no doubt. And uh, I guess uh, be between that sort of early sort of foray into the 100 miles and the UTMB race itself and sort of 12 months or whatever, um, yeah, what, what did you change in order to make that a successful event over in France? couple of things. Um, one is I really uh, took my training even more seriously. Uh, I was, you know, I had a coach at the time before Ultra Trail de Mont Blanc and I was, you know, I was, I was trying to be pretty serious about it. I planned things fairly well and get ready for them. But uh, as soon as I got into UTMB, I really just stepped it up entirely. Um, and what I mean by that is I concentrated on a particular type of training that I, I knew I needed. So I, uh, incredible amount of ups and downhill. Um, at one point I had, uh, you know, the most vertical in Australia for, you know, for, for a month, um, there was guys like, uh, Brandon Davies and Ben Duffus who were kind of trailing me in the, the amount of vertical that I was doing. Um, so I, I really just got stuck into, um, very run race specific training. Um, and for me, that was use some of your strengths in climbing. Uh, and I'm not sure whether the, you know, my outdoor work and kind of things in skiing helped me be a better climber, but I certainly can climb pretty hard. And so I just trained my climbing, trained my downhills. Um, what I did realize I neglected was I neglected the flat running and I didn't do enough um, kind of sprinting or intervals. 
um, which I learned a few years later before going into kind of uh, black hole and, and Western States that, um, you know, those, those were also a significant key to your, to your running. And this, when I added them in that, you know, that changed things even further. Look, I guess it's, it's hard to fit in all of that, you know, at the same time, it's, it's, it's nice to have different races that you can focus on different specificities there. So yeah, there's only so many hours in a day, I guess, Mike. <laughs> Some people have more than others. I heard a, um, heard a podcast recently by, uh, you know, of yours, one of the, one of your podcasts with um, Nick Bamford and uh, that guy's got endless hours. I reckon he's got 35 hours in a day. You know, he, you're a CEO of a company and yeah, he's still kicking, kicking butt, you know, 150 kilometers a week and, you know, 6,000 meters. So, you know, mm. other, you know, he's, he's like in a time machine, I reckon. I guess most people just need to sleep. That's the problem. <laughs> true. That's true. <laughs> Those pesky eight hours get in the way of a lot of things. <laughs> uh, you, you've described, uh, I guess, punching above your weight in, in ultra marathons. Uh, what, what do you mean by this, mate? <laughs> uh, I am not an, I'm not a natural um, kind of speed demon runner whatsoever. I'm not a sprinter. Um, I'd get beaten by my daughter, I'm sure in a sprint right now, but um, you know, what I, what I am good at doing is I'm very good at planning. Um, I, I've got a, a propensity to be able to eat and continue to eat and continue to fuel myself without, you know, feeling sick and um, so keeping that energy up high and I'm just really stubborn. So I think a superpower is I just don't, I don't give up for me. The finish is uh, so important you know, getting, getting, getting done what you started, um, I think it's just a, a massively important, important thing for me. Um, and so I just use those three things. I just use very strong planning, um, you know, really strong fueling and, and making sure that I've always got energy and then um, just pushing myself to, to make, to get, get it done, you know, as, uh, as key motivators. And, and do you think that uh, strong fueling sort of aspect comes from a steady diet of poutine back in the mother country? Absolutely. You can't, for those people that don't know what poutine are, you cannot get anything better than cheese gravy, cheese curd gravy on chips. Um, you know, and you're not, you're absolutely right. Now you, you, if you combine that with what's called a beaver tail, a beaver tail, right. You've got the perfect Canadian meal other than maybe a, a, a Labatt blue or a Molson Canadian beside it. Um, beaver tail, by the way, is not actually a beaver tail. What beaver tail is, is it's a cinnamon, almost a cinnamon donut in the shape of a, um, of a, uh, a beaver's tail. Very famous in Canada. Look them up. Um, they'll be in Australia pretty soon, just like Dunkin' Donuts. <laughs> and look, it would be remiss of me not to ask on behalf of friend of the show, Jordan Anderson, uh, can you get any good poutine in Brisbane? <laughs> uh, I, look, I haven't, I haven't found really good poutine in Brisbane. You can get some knockoff versions, but there's, there's a reason for this. And that, and that is that the cheese curd, the actual Canadian original cheese curd is not, not really allowed in Australia or not sold very often. You can get it. It does get imported. Mm -hmm. In fact, I've got a, I've got a mate up in, um, uh, up in Mackay who has a Canadian Canada day party every year. And he actually buys um, a couple of kilograms of um, cheese curd from the Gold Coast and gets it sent up to Mackay for his parties, but it is very hard to find. For a long period of time, it actually actually wasn't wasn't um, allowed under the health health laws just because of the way it's produced. Cheese curd is the magic in. If you don't have proper cheese curd, then you don't have proper poutine. It disappoints me that we're living in such a nanny state that I can't get good poutine. That's <laughs> you can't get good curd. If you could just get good curd, you'd be limited. That's awesome. And so, look, I guess in relationship to uh, this this punching above your weight, I, I believe you've got a, uh, a a finish line story with the the great Ben Duffus just in, in, in recent history. 
Yeah, oh, that's that's a cool story, and I, and that's that is probably one of my proudest moments in in uh, ultra ultra running um, because of the way that uh, I guess it played out on the trails. And so the story behind that one is um, this was at the Guzzler two, uh, 2021, and um, uh, we'd actually sorry 2020 2021 2020, and uh, myself and a guy I trained with for a long time, um, Alex the Murph Murphy, um, who's a Brisbane-based runner. Um, we'd, you know, be, we'd been running all day at the Guzzler hundred K and, uh, we'd heard a few checkpoints before, um, you know, about the 87 mark, which is up at McAfee's lookout. If anyone knows the space around Mount Kutha, um, that Ben, Ben had been in a pretty bad way. He'd been leading the race. Like he's way out in front. We're talking like an hour and a half out in front of anyone in this race. Um, but he'd gotten pretty bad shape coming into that, uh, McAfee's. And we got into McAfee's and he'd been in there for about an hour and 45 minutes with the medics and um, couldn't get out because um, just wasn't well enough. And they wouldn't release him unless someone actually uh, escorted him to the finish. So uh, Alex and I, uh, his mom was up there and um, his, his dad was probably close by. And we said to his mom, look, we'd be happy to, we'll, um, we'll take him to the finish and get, make sure he gets done. So Alex and I were sitting, we knew we were sitting probably in the top five at that point in time um, in the race. We uh, grabbed Ben and we just started hiking out. We we hiked out for probably about uh, five or so kilometers. And um, yeah, now give give it to the give it to the guy. He's a pretty awesome runner and, and an absolute champion. Suddenly he gets a second wind, and by about three or four kilometers left, where you're you're coming up, um, you know, Kokoda, which again is a one of the steep, a really steep hill on on um, Mount Kutha. And it's also only about like four kilometers or three kilometers from the finish line of um, the Guzzler at that time. You know, Ben's basically ready to run up this thing. So suddenly he's got a second win. He's dragging us up this thing. But we crossed the finish line in fourth place together. So no one passed us. Um, the top three had already gone in. Um, and they passed Ben at the uh, checkpoint when he, he, was, um, he was with the medics. Um, but we, we got fourth place and we, uh, we all crossed the line together. And, and I just, uh, you know, I look back on that and I just think about the trail camaraderie and the chats that we had. Um, and the opportunity to finish a guy with a guy who's, you know, one of Australia's best uh, is pretty proud. Yeah, mate, that's that's a great moment. Um, w- was there just a little bit of a uh, devil on the shoulder saying I should just chest this guy on the finish line? <laughs> yeah, look, I mean, like, there's always that um, that sense of competition in you, but um, I don't know. I I think actually, funnily enough, it's probably different. It was probably we almost slowed down and we almost just we and we held hands. There's a photo of it where we come across the line holding up our hands. And we almost just, instead of chesting each other, we went, we're not going to go cross this thing until all three of us cross it, yeah. which is pretty cool. You know, it's it an interesting way to finish a race. And, and look, there is plenty of that within the trail running community, which yeah, is one of the attractive things about the whole sport. 100%, yeah. Hmm. Look, you, you obviously fairly uh, heavily entrenching in corporate world as well as uh, ultra trail running. What, what are some of the applications of skill that you've picked up in, in corporate worlds and how do they translate across to, to our, our running game? <laughs> yeah, I've, um, I've, talked, I, I've talked quite a bit over the years about how um, ultra running and this, t- you know, this type of event that takes you just to the edges of your, you know, own, your own kind of level of challenge um, is a lot like uh, you know, uh, running a company or being an executive or, or really just your day-to-day life. You know, it, it, um, it starts in a certain way and it finishes in a certain way with a, you know, a beginning and an end. Um, and within that, there's probably there's a number of different, you know, similarities that include things like, you know, what kind of 
um, strategy and the way that you approach your day, you know, what, what you actually kind of put in place to, to help you, um, you know, excel in what you do, how you, you know, how you continuously monitor the things that, you know, demonstrate your success. So the, you know, the data that you take in that, that tells you that you're doing something well, um, the way you finish, you know, how you debrief with those people that support you, how you make use of support systems. All of those things are things that are part of trail running, right? Mm-hmm. Checkpoints are where you meet your support crew. Um, boardrooms are where you meet your, your colleagues, you know, to discuss key things. Um, you know, out on the trails where you actually meet your, you know, uh, fellow competitors. In the, you know, uh, a courtroom is where you, you meet the, um, the other lawyer that you're, you know, you know running, a, running a case against. So mm-hmm. all of these things, they're huge comparables to each other. And I think ultra running becomes quite a bit like a um, almost a metaphor for how you should live life in in general. And I, I teach a I teach a or a lecture in a um, an MBA course at uh, uh, Griffith University where I'm, where I'm an, an adjunct. Um, and I often bring that up as a uh, comparison between how a, an executive will you know um, uh, start and finish a project as being very similar to how an ultra marathon will start and finish an ultra marathon. Um, and it often starts before the start line. It actually begins with the planning and the preparation and the strategy and the, um, you know, the, the entire process of getting yourself ready to hit the start line um, that makes all the difference. Yeah, for sure. I, yeah, I love all those comparisons. And I, I, I read your article uh, in Trail Runner magazine on the, the 12 steps of ultra running and most of those sort of uh, points apply to what you're talking about there. I, I guess I'll just pick up a couple of the 12 points. You won't sort of go into detail on them all, but I guess no, num, number three was just start, I guess. So getting to the start line is such an important thing and most people put off this stuff in, in life, in, in their work and, and in running because they don't think they're quite ready there. What, what's your take on, on starting? Yeah, I think, um, you know, people, people uh, naturally, you know, humans have a natural propensity for um, procrastination and for uh, not doing the things that are the most challenging, but usually the most um, valuable and, and rewarding to them in, in the long run. Um, and that makes, that makes starting, you know, starting one of the most difficult, difficult things for you know anyone whether they're in business or you know or in their running career and i think a lot of a lot of people some uh, sometimes um you know and let's let's take running as the example um can sabotage themselves through you know just just approaching the start line and the preparation for getting the start line in in a way that's um you know not aligned with you know their own personal value system or their own personal training system or their own personal objectives um getting caught up in the hype of trying to you know, meet some predetermined goal for them that's not really theirs mm. is um, is something that you see a lot of runners end up, um, you know, kind of kind of falling in the trap of. Um, and it's the same. It's the same in life. You know, um, we've got a, a great team at the organization that I work with, uh, and we're always very very busy. And we have a million things to do. Um, but when prioritization decision making becomes a really big challenge. The easiest thing for many many people to do, and that um, you know, and this is research science shows this is to um, is to you know take the easy way out and do the easier things. Hmm. Um, and, and when you get down that track and you get used to it, um, it becomes a habit. And when it becomes a habit, it becomes something that then challenges you to be able to start and finish and finish things because you don't get the start line, you don't finish it right. Hmm. Um, start and finish things well for you know for a long period of time. 
Yep, I like that. Uh, and, and number four, I, I guess everyone understands how important fueling is in ultra marathon running. But what's your take on on the fuel for fuel for life or fuel for for business and and work? Yeah, well, I think for for myself personally, um, I've, I take a you know very strong um, lifelong learning approach to everything that I do, and I think that making sure that you are continuously learning and continuously evaluating things in life is really the fuel of life. If you start stop asking questions about things, you stop chasing down, you know, new things to learn. Um, you can become very stagnant, very, very quick. And so like an ultra marathon, my pop marathon, might pop a gel um, to make sure they've got the energy for the next 10 kilometers of their run, um, making sure that you continuously um, provide yourself with the energy of learning and new experiences and, um, you know, engagement with people and connection are all things that fuel fuel you in life and and without that kind of fuel um you, you become like the ultra runner that just bonks you know with uh you know 20 kilometers left in a race and ends up you know dropping out at a checkpoint simply because they just haven't continued to keep the rage up um inside their bodies or inside their minds in the case of um you know uh, someone that's you know out in corporate world or you know you know, working on anything in life. Um, but you keep that fuel coming in and um, you reap the rewards. I get the feeling that uh, the vast majority of, you know, trail and ultra runners probably fit the category of, you know, the person that chases new information and chases new experience, you know, seeks out different people. Uh, you know, they're kind of looking for adventure. So, yeah, I, I feel like they're probably pretty engaged in that process already. Yeah, I, th- I think you're right. I think that it's a, the natural person who does, you know, engage in something like ultra running is um, seeking out something different. Mm. Uh, I guess sometimes, you know, ultra runners come into the into the into ultra running for different reasons, right? Mm. You know, um, you know, some come for exploration, some come to challenge themselves, some come to escape something. I've met all kinds. When you go for a trail run with someone, or it's particularly a long one. Uh, and you start talking to them and really engaging and connecting with them around those things that are important to them. You hear some amazing stories about the motivations for, you know, why they, they, um, you know, get out there on the trails and, and explore their own limits. Hmm. Uh, and they're so varied and so interesting that, um, you know, they can really become a compelling kind of case for why you, you want to explore trails even further and people in general. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. I mean, there's certainly tons of, Tons of great stories out there. I think, unfortunately, most of the guys I run with are just running away from their wives and kids. So it's uh... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, look, not not running towards the finish line, but running away from That's some right. other line. Yeah, <laughs> That's right. I'll, I'll just pick one more out of the 12 steps. And it's yeah. uh, number eight, take take it easy on yourself. And, and, and I think um, it's something a lot of runners and, and probably those A-type personalities struggle with a little bit. What's... Uh, What's the relationship there? Yeah, you've hit on my favorite out of out of all of them, um, and you know, take it take it easy on yourself. The way that I that phrase that is, it's okay to walk. And for for an ultra marathoner, um, something they've got to get used to is that some points throughout the race, it's okay, and sometimes even even better just to just to walk and just to slow down. Uh, and I've seen this in not only in, in ultra runs where people may, might go out a bit too fast or don't know when to pull back on a real on a on a hill and conserve their energy. I've seen this so many times in the corporate world where um, people just struggle to take their uh, foot off the off the pedal 
and um, and take stock of where they're at within their own either career or within a project or within the team environment they work within. And in the end, it, uh, just like an ultra runner, if you don't do it right, do it well, it um, ends up blowing out you know your quads or knocking you out of the race because you don't have any energy left and you do get that bonk. And you you see that time and time again outside of the ultra running world um where where people just they they um can give up on a project or give up on a on a business um simply because they just didn't take time to um you know check their ego at the door and um, spend some time really you know saying to themselves it's, it's okay to walk um and it, just a quick story in 20 2020 i made that decision that i that i would take a year where i just said you know what it's it's okay it's okay to walk and i kind of come through 2020 and really um, smashed a bunch of races, got through in October and uh, in 2021 was wondering what was next. And just to said to myself, you know what, I'm actually just going to take a year where I don't race. And I just get, you know, kind of get myself ready in other parts of life, um, uh, take stock of things, you know, write part of a book, spend lots of time with my lovely two, you know, daughters, um, go on a bit of a trip around Queensland and caravan um, and not worry too much about you know, having to race all the time. Just say it's okay to walk. Uh, and if anything, in 2021, I came back stronger and I raced better. And, um, you know, I felt, um, I felt like, uh, you know, I'd, I'd learned something and, and, you know, really excelled in, in both life and in running. Yeah, that's great. And, and it's definitely my favourite, the points too. And I think one of the central pieces of that particular point is to not compare yourself to others in, in, in racing and in life. And I think that's when we do struggle to take our foot off the accelerator when we're, uh, you know, chasing down that next person in front of us, whether it be on Instagram or, you know, 20 metres up the road in an ultramarathon. So I think um, one of the psychologists we've had on the show, Nadine Davies, I think she she used the phrase, uh, comparison is, is, is the arsehole of joy or something like that. So, <laughs> yeah, I think... Um, yeah, get, get, getting rid of that comparative sort of, yeah, shutting your head is good to, good to do too. Absolutely. Let's, let's, uh, let's, let's move on to uh, some, some selfish chat because I'm, I'm going to have my name in the barrel for I think the fifth year in a row for Western States uh, 100 miler. So I'm hoping I've got about 16 names in, in, in said barrel. Yeah. How, how many names in the barrel did you have before you got picked out of that thing? I, I had uh, 32. I, I'm pretty sure I had, I'm pretty sure it's 30, 32. There's a COVID year in there um, that they didn't, uh, they didn't have a draw uh, because the race was obviously canceled and they just carried everyone over. So yeah, I'm pretty, I'm sure, I'm sure it's 32. Um, yeah. And so that's, um, I guess what you're getting at is I got the lucky opportunity to get drawn out of that barrel. Yes. Um, I think it was number, I was about number 46 coming out of that. And I remember, uh, and I've listened, I don't know, do you listen to the uh, to the draw? Do you get up in the middle of the night? And oh, mate, I had such low expectations. I slept like a baby. <laughs> <laughs> I can't help myself. It's like a, um, it's been a tradition for probably about four or five of the years um, yeah. to, to get up and put it. And I listen to probably the first 50 or so, and then you kind of fall asleep because it's like one o'clock and two o'clock in the morning or something like that. And you wake up the next morning and nothing happens. Um, this time I got drawn out, I think I'm pretty sure it was around 46 or whatever. And, um, and so I was still awake, you know, and I, and I'm pretty sure I woke up just about the entire neighborhood at that point in time um, <laughs> with, with my excitement, but yeah, what can you say? It's pretty special to get drawn out of the um, barrel, but then I'll tell you what the next, the next six months, that's, um, that's an, that's an adventure right after yeah. the race. And, and so did you change things up? You're talking about sort of doing some more speed work, some more flat work to try to get ready for Western States. 
Yeah, absolutely went into the speed and flat work. Um, and I and I really spent a lot of time trying to get myself faster over the uh, 10 to 21K kind of mark. Mm. I still still did a lot of the kind of hill sprinting and the um, the lo- obviously long runs. But I just I just really focused on on getting out and doing faster stuff, just taking myself a bit to the a bit more to the edge of of um, of where my pace could get to on on undulating trails. On I used to call it the can can uh, the caravans um, of uh, what is it uh, of Bunya the trail trail you know Bunya trails, which was um, basically the ca- the canyons and caravans around Bunya trails which were um, kind of the undulations through there. And uh, it was a, you know, you get out and I'd train. The other thing I did was just heat training. So mm-hmm. during the summer, I got myself and I'd train on a Saturday instead of waking up and getting out there at 4 a.m. on the trails, I'd get up and start at 12, 30, one o'clock mm-hmm. in the afternoon and do my long run from there just to get some heat into my body. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it's, it's definitely a different type of race to train for than anything around Australia. And look, do you think that that specific heat training paid dividends down in the, the canyons on Western States Trail? Yeah, uh, certainly did. It certainly, I think it really did help out just getting used to getting uncomfortable in kind of the sweaty heat. Mm-hmm. Um, the one thing that I did notice is that you got over there and if you've trained in Queensland, if you've been kind of training through the summer, the heat's not something foreign, like that kind of, that kind of the, the heat feels not different than what you get in Queensland other than the, the humidity. So the heat over there is dry. It's a dry heat, um, and it radiates off the rocks and the canyons, and um, that's yeah, you know, it's pretty nasty. But it, the humidity's not there, mm-hmm. and so what I what I was kind of I was expecting heat, but I just didn't. I wasn't feeling like I was sweating all the time, like in the humidity, which actually I felt almost like there was with the amount of ice that I got onto myself. Um, which at Western States this year, the quote from the race director Craig Thornley was he had forty two kilograms of ice per runner in the race available and i reckon i used every ounce of the 42 kilograms of ice in my sleeves and in my bandana and in my hat Mm. throughout that race to keep myself cool um (laughs) yes it was it was fun i didn't want to see another chunk of ice after that race for about a month that's unreal look i certainly made use of the ice up on black hall the other week um yeah it was going down every item of clothing i had through the middle of the day down the strides (laughs) down the shirt all over the place great absolutely you just got to let it ooze all over you. Just get it, get into it. Get it into you. <laughs> and, and look, was there anything in your debrief from Western States that you would have done differently in hindsight? Oh, um, yeah. Funny. That's a that's a tough question. I've had a, I've had a debrief um, with with uh, my pacers from uh, Western States and my support crew, and I was lucky enough to have two American American pacers over there that paced me throughout the day um a quick story about uh, uh, about mark and how uh, mark's a local guy that um, he's a skateboarder he lives in auburn you know um get, got into trail racing a number of years ago and um he's been running those trails for years Hal hall is um so if you walk down if you're in west if you get into western states and you go down the main drag in auburn look for there's about six stars like you're talking um hollywood walk of fame stars in the pavement and one of those is Hal hall so what that's, he's got one of the six stars right, before, right beside Tim Tweetmeyer yeah. and Tim, Tim's got 30, you know, 30 race finish under 24 hour race finish belts, including a couple of wins. Um, and Hal's got the most belt buckles for um, the equestrian uh, race. So mm. for the Tevis cup, he's got 31 finished his 31 this year. Um, now Hal's also an amazing runner. He's in his sixties, 
but he paced, he's paced two winners of the Western States in the final stages. So he's an elite type runner. So these are the two guys that I had um, running with me. And we did a debrief session just on, you know, after I'd left uh, um, North America and we um, sat down, had a chat about it. And, and they asked me that exact question is what would you have changed on the day? And, and I, uh, my honest answer to them was um, I, I wish I could even run faster with you on the day, you know, cause I started, I started this day and I just said to myself um, at a hundred kilometers into this race, um, you hit Forest Hill, you pick up your first pacer and your motto for the whole day has to be respect your pacer because they're there to run with you and they want to they want to run as fast as they can and get you to the finish line. So respect your pacer on the day and uh, and make sure you can run fast. Uh, my day went perfect in my own mind. I, I don't think I could have changed anything on the day. I don't think I could have run faster. I don't think I could have you know fueled better. Um, I respected my pacers and I was able to run with them, um, even though I, I wish I could have even gone faster. Um, and I finished over the line with my brother, who was my third third pacer, flew from Canada, never ran on the trails in his life, but he's a, a very athletic guy, does martial arts. And, um, you know, he he finished the last 10 kilometers and finished with me. So, you know, under 24 hours, who, what else could I what else could I possibly do except, um, you know, try and chase down, uh, you know, the top three, which um, was never going to happen. Right? <laughs> oh, mate, coming down to 24 hours is such an amazing result and, and a thoroughly deserved belt buckle, which I noticed you were sporting up in Queensland when I saw you. Um, oh, yeah. how, how much mileage are you getting out of that thing? Uh, I would say at least once a week. Once a week. So I, I wear it in, I, wear, I work in a legal firm. I wear it into the office. Um, I was at a big charity lunch on, uh, on the weekend for our fathers of girls, which is a not-for-profit that I, that I sit on the board of. And um, I was sporting my cowboy boots and my belt buckle at the, at the lunch. So it was, it was going off. It was very Western States themed. I'll tell you what. I love it, mate. I love it. And I guess we should talk about your Instagram handle, the trail cowboy. Uh, <laughs> can, can you tell us about living the trail cowboy code? Yeah, yeah. So I, um, a number of years ago, uh, I should tell you a little, bit, a little bit more about my background. I'm, I'm a human geographer. So I did a, years ago, I, um, I taught in universities for a number of years, as well as my corporate life. Um, and uh, and uh, wrote a doctorate a number of years in the space of environmental sustainability and education. And so I study, I study communities and, and, um, and the way that people interact with environments. Um, and I started thinking about like the ultra running community and the ultra running environment and making comparisons around, you know, what, what were they, what was, what were kind of some of the key, um, I guess, aspects or elements of this community. And I've always had an interest in, in cowboys, you know, the John Wayne type, Lewis Lamore type, uh, you know, um, books don't hold it against me, but I always just thought the, it's a very romantic type of lifestyle, you know, that if I was back in the 1800s or something like that, I probably would have loved to get on a horse. Now I'm a, I'm not a very good horse rider. I'd love to learn. Um, uh, and I've been on a horse a few times and try to pretend I'm a cowboy. I've got a great cowboy hat, cowboy boots, but um, certainly not a true to form cowboy. Uh, but I, I think ultra runners live a cowboy code. You know, I think that um, the way that we approach the sport, we approach each other and, and um, you know, the, the character that we have as, as people in general, I think is very much like the cowboy. And I'll tell you a little bit, there's, you know, 10, there actually are 10 internationally accepted um, uh, parts to the cowboy code. So there's 10, 10 aspects that, you know, they have a day every day. And you know, I think it's in July, there's the day of the cowboy. It's a, it's a national festival over in, you know, the States and in the United States and Canada and the 10 um, aspects of the cowboy code are number one, live, it, live each day with courage. Number two, 
take pride in your work. Number three, always finish what you start. Number four, do it has to be done. Number five, be tough, but be fair. Number six, when you make a promise, keep it. Number seven, ride for the brand. Number eight, talk less and say more. Number nine, remember that some things aren't for sale. And number 10, know where to draw the line, right? And this, you can picture, you can, you can picture John Wayne, right? Sauntering up to a start line at, you know, Blackall, right? And just, he's just looking, you know, back and forth at people, just kind of smiling, sniffling, shifting his shoulders, getting ready and just kind of going, you know, here it is. Let's do it. Today, we're going to ride for the brand. We're going to, you know, I'm not going to, I'm not going to talk. I'm going to talk less. I'm going to stay more with my feet. You know, I'm going to know where to draw the line at that checkpoint, eat some quiche or suck down, you know, some, some hidden beer in behind some volunteer's chair. You know, and at the end of the day, I'm going to live with courage and get to the finish line, finish what I started. So ultra marathoners are trail cowboys. They just don't ride horses to the, you know, to the start line anymore. Like, <laughs> uh, like they did back in the 1800s. Mate, I love that. That is so good. What a great uh, credo for trail runners. <laughs> ah, fantastic. All right, I think we might uh, put that on a tattoo somewhere. That, that's um, that's amazing. That's amazing. We'll, we'll get myself trade, some boots. Trademark. I'm going to get trademark myself some boots to go cow. with the uh, the belt buckle that sh- should be on my you know, belt by July next year. We'll see. Oh, we'll cannot see. wait, Paul, to cheer you on on the uh, around the twenty fifth of July over there at Western States. I hope, I hope the guys should get in the in the draw. Fingers crossed. Anyway, we should we should move on to the big hot topic that we came here to talk about: trail running at the Olympics. Uh, I've, I've spoken to a couple of couple of guests about this in the past, but this is this is a concrete push to get trail running at the twenty thirty two Brisbane Games. So tell me, where did the impetus to kick off this ambitious campaign stem from? Okay, so um, like I said, you know, I've always said I like a I like a big challenge. Uh, I was lucky to I was lucky to come over to Australia in 1999, right before the 2000 Olympic Games, and you know this was this games was a was an interesting games globally because it was one of the first where well in the in the, in the definitely in the in the last kind of recent memory where they started to introduce quite a few different sports um, and very much in line with um, the Australian kind of, uh, I guess, um, environment, you know, our climate, uh, things like uh, beach volleyball, you know, became a, became a sport that they, um, that they introduced. And it took a lot of years for, for, you know, people like Natalie Cook um, to, you know, become that, that gold medal champion. And she was certainly part of the push to get, um, to get volleyball, uh, beach volleyball into the Olympics at the time. Um, and so I was, I was kind of lucky enough to engage with a few Olympians around uh, the idea of getting, you know, another sport into the Olympics a few years ago. Mm. Um, Natalie Cook's been, been great. She's, um, you know, she spoke to us in the last little while around her journey and, and um, you know, how she could potentially, you know, how she, she saw, you know, new sports getting in the Olympics and the different pathways you can go through. Um, so we, we started forming this, this idea, and it wasn't just me. It was the Trail Running Association of Queensland. Um, and, and a few kind of supporters started really forming this idea around, you know, could you, could you take a look at 2032 with a 10 year runway? You got to keep in mind, this is, these are some of the first Olympics at Paris, Los Angeles and, and, um, Brisbane over the kind of that coming, coming 12 years, uh, sorry. Um, yeah, 10 years that they've announced so far in front, they've really given a lot of lead time to the next set of Olympics. And so we started thinking, look, if you know that you've got, um, up to 10 years, would it be possible to really push for a new sport that literally has not had any real engagement with the um, International Olympic Committee um, to date? And the answer is we weren't sure. 
then we started reaching out. So we talked to the Americans, the American Trail Running Association and, and their founder. And, and we started to identify that there actually were a few people um, globally that have been pushing for trail running for quite a few years. Um, and let's, we got to remember too, back in the, um, I think it was about the 1930s or 40s, cross-country running um, was actually an Olympic sport, right? So they actually did have cross-country running in the Olympics for, for a number of years. You know, and this was, this was obviously not trail running, but it was off of hard packed concrete and it was a different form of athletics at that point in time. So there, there has been form in this kind of this off, off of, uh, you know, uh, kind of the hard packed concrete running um, or track running um, as an Olympic sport in the past. Uh, so we started investigating it further and we found a few more supporters around um, Australia and internationally and decided that, you know, it, this could be a really interesting push to go forward with. So we started, um, you know, we put together a brand and we got um, some logos, you know, made up and we started talking to some supporters. We set a, um, uh, uh, basically a 10 year, 10 year plan about how we could get there, a very high level plan that we're now drilling down into. And we started building a volunteer team, a working group. Um, which we've now got a, a solid working group behind us. We've got some great supporters across the country. Uh, and we feel that if we position it right, if we sell the message well enough, and if we um, continue to leverage uh, some of the international uh, organizations that have been, have been starting to see this, this uh, idea of trail running being the Olympics for a few years now, and that we didn't realize it's, it has been there and behind the scenes in America and a few other places, um, we figure that, you know, Queensland and, and uh, the Southeast Queensland region, you couldn't find a better kind of um, growing trail running community, volunteer community uh, and supporter base in which to, to host um, trail running in the Olympics for the first time. Mm. Well, it's very exciting. Exciting that there's some, uh, yeah, some, some concrete plans in place. Um, I, I guess talking about that, that 10 year plan, what, what are the initial steps that need to, to come off to, to get the ball rolling, I, sh I should say? Yeah, so the, the, very, very, the very first step is really bringing together uh, the stakeholders around Australia to um, a, uh, I guess, a united front around how they want to approach what is really our, the peak organization in Australia for athletics of any kind, Australian athletics. Mm -hmm. um, and with, without being able to really form a consolidated um, group of, of representatives across the country, um, into a body of some kind, like the Trail Running Association of Queensland, um, we really need to have an Australian Trail Running Association or a Trail Running Association of, of Australia, whatever we want to call it, mm. um, to form a, a representative body that we can then have a voice nationally that we can speak to organizations like Athletic Australia and um, perhaps work through them or, you know, many, there are quite a few different pathways we can go through, um, but in which to really be able to present our case. Because right now, there's a huge, there's a, there's a number of different um, associations across the country. Mm. There are, are two biggest states in, uh, in Australia, uh, population-wise, New South Wales and, and Victoria don't have a, a state-based association or body. Mm -hmm. um, now, I've, I've heard rumors recently that um, uh, I believe it's New South Wales is going to have a meeting soon to discuss forming a body. And um, we've, I've actually got someone that I'm going to speak to very soon around um, how we can how we can help them either help them to do that or get them in early as part of our um, uh, trail running Australia uh, sorry trail running 2032 push um, which is really that's a very exciting a very exciting aspect of you know what you know the first step in Australia which is to unite the community um, you know and find a way to um, find a way to, to make sure that uh, we have a, a one voice 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. And look, have you had initial talks with Athletics Australia or Australian Ultra Runners Association there to, I guess, join forces? Yeah, Aura, absolutely. So the Australian Ultra Runners Association there, President Ewan was um, uh, about 15 minutes in front of me at uh, Western States at the finish. So I chased them all day. In fact, I came into, um, came into a checkpoint at, at um, down on Cal Street. I forget which one it was. And I saw Ewan kind of run out. And I suddenly heard this tall guy with curly hair say, oh, these Australians are doing great today. They're all, they're so full of, you know, full, so full of fun, having a great time. And, uh, and he turned around and it was Scott Jurek. You know, oh. <laughs> it's his it's his checkpoint. And I looked up and I said, Oh, you love the Australian student. He's like, Oh, mate, are you from Australia as well? You know, oh, it's great to talk to you. And I'm sitting there just going, you know, I want to take a picture and get a you know, get an autograph from this this god of trail running, but um, <laughs> you know, I could barely stand up right now. So I'm just gonna let my pacer get me out of here and start moving. But um, yes, Ewan was uh, you know, he's there at the race. We had a great chat, we've talked since. Um, really keen to have the support of organizations that have come before us and have a great forum and provide an amazing, you know, um, uh, amount of support to the trail running community across Australia, like Aura. Um, Athletics Australia, we haven't uh, reached out to yet ourselves. Now in saying that there are um, other uh, communities that are, are part of our, our push in, in South Australia and Tasmania that do know them much better than we do. Mm-hmm. And so it will be, as we get towards having this, what will be next year, a, a summit, a national leadership um, in trail running summit, bringing all of these various different stakeholders together that will give us the opportunity to really start talking to an organization like Athletic Australia because they're going to want to know what plan we have. You know, what do we actually have in place in terms of a real plan to, um, to make this happen? Because they're busy and they've got lots of sports to deal with. And um, a brand new one um, could be either a headache or a, um, a, you know, a brilliant new partner. And we want to be the, the second one in that group. Look, I've got no doubt you'll be a brilliant new partner there, mate. Um, and, and it's probably worth talking to a fellow Canadian and friend of the show, Jordan Anderson, who's rolling out the uh, the Level 3 Trail and Ultra uh, coaching course for Athletics Australia. So he, he'd be one to to get on board ASAP, I would have thought. Uh, we can talk, talk more after the show anyway. Um, I guess, uh, you know, starting to talk about these things, it brings up a whole bunch of hypotheticals and and I'm not suggesting that you've got the answers to these things at this stage, but... Uh, you know, what, what do you envisage being a, a distance would be number one question for, for trial running at the Olympics? Yeah, it's, it's probably one of the main questions that I, that I get asked around, um, around the kind of the push for this. And I think the, the answer is, um, you know, how long is a, a piece of trail um, from trailhead to finish? But uh, I think where we're gonna, we need to pitch this in a way that is um, digestible to a whole bunch of audiences and stakeholders. Mm-hmm. Um, it has to be digestible to um, uh, television audiences and, and media. It has to be digestible to the amount of volunteers required and the safety requirements. Um, it's got to be, you know, from a spectator point of view, it's got to be, you know, something that's uh, appropriate with the authorities to, to have us on trails. So um, it's got, it, it has to be in a, enough of a package that it's manageable for mm-hmm. with an Olympic, with an Olympic kind of lens put on it. Um, I'm picturing us to have something uh, between about the, the 14 and 20 kilo, 21 kilometer mark. So these are, these are kind of in the range of the, uh, uh, the mountain running type, you know, the mountain running type distances, um, uh, the sky, the, the shorter kind of sky running distances, not the sky ultras. Um, so I think within that it's, that's fairly digestible. There's a lot of amazing runners at a global stage, both, um, you know, track, road and, tra- and trail mm. that could make real, real mint 
out of a um, out of a distance like that, you know, and could be in a position in you know ten years from now to really be able to have a chop at it. So that's my gut feeling. However, um, you know, part of coming together as the you know uh, leadership and trail running summit next year is to ask that question: is where does that distance, you know, what would the package look like that would actually be Olympic friendly? would allow for, um, you know, the, the best possible coverage and, and, and um, showing off of the sport uh, globally um, and, and provide, you know, real value to the, the athletes that come here to, um, to experience it and, and uh, you know, contest it. Mm. Yeah, and I think probably uh, needing to differentiate yourself from, say, the World Cross Country Championships, that sort of slightly shorter distance there, you probably do need to go a fraction longer than those events. Yeah. And the question I think will get asked more and more is, is this ultra, you know, do, do we need to look at it being an ultra event to really kind of, you know, create something special? Mm. Um, and the answer is, I, I don't know. And mm. I don't think, I think number one for us is let's just come together as a united group, form a body that has a voice. And then um, as part of that, we'll start to tease out by understanding the stakeholders needs from, you know, the, grassroots organization that might volunteer up to the IOC, Hmm. um, you know, what they actually, what they actually think is the most appropriate, you know, um, distance and contest to Hmm. put that, put out on an Olympic stage. Yeah, for sure. And and I guess you point to the success of mountain biking and their inclusion in, in the recent past, you know, they've, you know, certainly different distances you can ride a mountain bike over, but they've they've found their sweet spot there within the Olympics quite comfortably. So it's completely doable stuff. Yeah, 100%. You know, and if they want us to build stadiums before, um, you know, Brisbane, well, guess what? They're done. We've got them. We've got stadiums all over the place. They're called Mount Kutha or, you know, the Black Hole Ranges or down in the Gold Coast hinterland. You know, you, we can you pick from them. They're already ready built. We're ready to rock. Geez, you guys are ahead of the curve up there. Fantastic. Fantastic. <laughs> uh, I, I guess uh, another interesting hypothetical, if uh, we're, we're racing the Olympics tomorrow for trial running over 21Ks, let's say, who, who, who do you pick in your team, mate? <laughs> oh, okay. That's what I haven't been asked before. You, you gave me a Dorothy Dixter here. How do I pick, <laughs> who do I pick in my team? Oh, wow. For that distance. I almost feel like I'd want to go with a um, with a, a road runner for this, and I'm not I'm not too great not too great with the you know the road running sprinters, mm. um, you know out there. But I'd I'd almost think that like someone transitioning if it was 21k to a road race with let's say um, at 21k maybe 1200 to 1400 meters of vertical, mm. so some good solid up and down um, in their ascent and descent. You know you'd almost go go in that way, but you you can't go past you can't go past kind of the you know the um, the top few men in international running and top few women for that, you know, that kind of sake, the people like the Courtney DeWalters and the, you know, and the female type races are, you know, they're speed demons of almost, almost an Olympic class in, you know, just in, um, you know, that kind of half marathon to marathon level, um, you know, the Jim Wamsley's are the same thing. Like these guys have almost qualified for, for Olympic trials in the past, um, you know, they'll come out and they'll just understanding the train and having that kind of, that kind of trail mindset. Um, you know, those kind of people would be top picks for my uh, men and women. If there were, if there, I'm going to jump, I'm going to chuck a name out there that, um, and I'm hoping I'm going to say the, the right first name, but there's a guy that I saw at the Southeast Queensland trail running um, event at uh, Inaugura, the very first event, I think his name was Jack Gill. 
Um, and this guy has quads on him that are like, would be, you could see, you'll see them at the Melbourne cup on the horses, um, you know, next week. It was incredible. Like it was, he was just an absolute machine and blitzed the whole field. Um, I presume he comes from, from road running perhaps as a background, but you know, a guy that has it can transition from a road running to just kill it in a trail running environment. Um, you know, he's, he's pretty, pretty impressive. And then I'm going to big, give a big shout out for one of my favorite female trail runners, Megan Brown. Um, you know, Brownie's Brownie, she, she's, she'll be on the edge of Olympic age by that time. Sorry, Brownie, but um, you might be training someone in your stable by that time that's competing in the Olympics, but gosh, I wish the Olympics were in a couple of years because mm. you know, she's fast, she's tenacious and, and uh, she, she'd kill it in that event right now. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And, and look, I, I... Uh, you'd be unwise to put anything past Risha Lewis uh, in the females, oh, to be perfectly true. frank. That girl true. is a machine. Uh, yeah, you're not wrong. Very you're impressive. Wrong. But, but look, it, it would be very interesting to see uh, if if you did get a whole bunch of, you know, d- great Australian marathoners and half marathoners coming across to trail running because it's, it's clearly more enjoyable. Everybody knows that. But if there's a pathway to the Olympics as well as that, then I think... They, they would lose a few of their marathon sensibilities fairly quickly and start running in the dirt. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, Hoka Hoka Trail Shoe sales would go through the roof in the elite in the elite field, wouldn't they? For you know, we'd have for all, all these all of the you know the Kenyans and the, these amazing kind of runners coming across mm. and uh, track sprinters and you know you know all these crossover athletes, just like the Americans trying to play rugby union, right? You know, as soon as they got behind it, put some money behind it, and took mm. all of their you know, gridiron superstars and put them into rugby. Suddenly, they're in the top top ten in the world. So mm, that's, that's exactly right. My um my my, my previous sport of uh, trampolining was one of those included in the two thousand Olympic Games, and uh, yeah, they, they've certainly since seen a, a massive influx of gymnasts coming across to trampoline sports because of that Olympic inclusion. So mm. it certainly dangles a fairly big carrot there for for some road and track runners. Absolutely. Mm. And, and so I guess when when is the cutoff date to be included in a, in a short list or, or, or do we know those sorts of timelines? Yeah, there's there's no, I'd think, official cutoff date. But um, in our plan, if we go, if you go onto the, uh, the website, um, www.trailrunning.org.au, and on there we've got a um, basically a plan from this year through to 2032. Mm-hmm. And realistically, we really need to be being considered by around um, uh, 2026, I think it's about 2026, 2027, we really need to be having some very significant talks with the IOC and being prepared at the very least to be included as a, um, potentially as like a demonstration sport Mm -hmm. at that time. Um, So pre, you know, in a perfect world, was it 2028 is the, uh, is it Los Angeles? Los Angeles repair, might be getting those mixed up, but I think it's Los Angeles. Yeah, Yeah, Los Angeles. By 2028, um, effectively, you know, we'd like to be announcing it. Mm-hmm. You know, we want to be saying in the 2032 Olympics in Brisbane for the very first time in history, um, trail running um, will be will be one of our new sports. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and, and if we, you know, if we got to that point by 2028 in Los Angeles, we're over there announcing it as a delegation. Mm-hmm. That would be a huge win, an mm-hmm. absolute huge win for us, obviously. Look, I, I certainly think it ticks a couple of boxes that uh, the IOC are potentially looking for. They've certainly gone down a popularity route in the last uh, couple of Olympic Games, you know, the skateboarding, uh, BMX, bike, those sorts of things are, are clearly aimed to catch uh, 
you know, a, a populace, uh, you know, a, a youthful crowd there. Trail running is is kicking goals in terms of its accessibility and its participation. So I'm, I'm sure they'll be keen to, to jump in front of lots of people there. And I think it uh, moves away from a subjective sport, which seems to be uh, the majority of the new sports popped into the Olympics are, you know, judged subjective performance-based sports, whereas a straight A to B running race has got to be right up their alley, I would have thought. Yeah, I I agree. I think it, it, I think that's one of the biggest challenges I've heard from from things like skateboarding and BMX is it you know, does bring in that judging panel again, where sometimes people just like it to be binary. You know, you cross the line first, you win you win the cookies, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I I think the interesting about uh, trail running, just picking up on what you just said and thinking about the new sports coming in, you know, uh, BMX and skateboarding, um, you know, without uh, being kind of ageist. Uh, they're young people's sports, you know, I'm, I'm 45 now and I've got a Tony Hawk lookalike skateboard that, you know, uh, with a similar kind of Powell Peralta look that I had back when I was, you know, 13, 14, 15 years old, I'm scared shitless to get on that thing, you know, in all honestly, that it would, I'd fall over just trying to go down the driveway in this, in this thing. But, you know, I bought it because I want to pretend I'm, I'm still cool at 45 and, um, but, it, but it's, it's, te- it's difficult to kind of get into that. And you don't see many people kind of in their fifties, you know, um, early sixties getting into, into BMX, you know, hardcore BMX or, or um, skateboarding, but you know what you do in trail running, mm-hmm. how many people out there on the trails are, are, you know, in their kind of fifties, you know, and in, into their sixties, you know, still actually smashing out a trail runner. They may not be running at the front end of the pack, but they're getting it done and they're, and they're finishing it. And I can, I've got a bunch of trail runners that I run with that are in their fifties. You know, in fact, I'm going for a run tomorrow morning with a, um, uh, uh, the chief entrepreneur for Queensland, a guy named Wayne Gerard, mm. who is um, found running later in life, but uh, his main, he lo- his main focus is trail running. Mm-hmm. You know, he, um, he runs, we're actually running on the, on the road tomorrow, but you know, he, um, his, his big passion is, is trail running. And, um, you know, he's, he's kind of into his, into his fifties now and, and very, and just absolutely loves it. Uh, so there is a huge populace, um, of supporters and, uh, people that would barrack for people at the Olympics, right. You know, and be there to support them. Um, that maybe, you know, that it, maybe it actually widens the viewer base and the supporter base for a support like trail running or like a sport like trail running, um, beyond even what a sport like, um, you know, a younger person sport, like a, like a BMX or a skateboarding might be. Yeah, hard to argue with that. I, I, I would be pretty confident about its its supporter base there. Look, before we move on, how do our listeners get, I guess, get in touch or throw their weight behind the project? Yeah, so there's, a, uh, a, I mean, one main way, and that is um, right now as we kind of set things up, it's to contact us um, through, through the website um, at www.trailrunning.org.au. Um, or through the Trail Running Association of Queensland um, website, where we actually have a contact us form. Um, you know, my my email is uh, president at track.org.au, mm-hmm. uh, which is on the uh, on the website. And um, right now, uh, you know, I'm kind of pushing pushing the campaign forward with a, a few other amazing amazing supporters. Um, but we really only have that landing page um, for people to ex- to access us beyond social media. If you want to, if you want to actually follow some of the posts that'll be coming out as we start to really ramp this up, and we have been a bit quiet for fear that we'd, um, you know, because we're a small team, get so inundated that we wouldn't be able to deliver on the promises that we're making to people around what we want to do. 
Um, so we're just really starting to ramp it up, but jump up on the Facebook and you can look up trail running 2032, Instagram trail running 2032, all of those social media challenges are ways that you can actually just start following us. Mm-hmm. Um, and then when we start seeing that people are following us, um, you know, we'll always have ways to kind of contact you either through social media or directly through emails, reach out, obviously messenger or email are great ways for us to, and they're my contact details on the, um, the web, web sh- website and Facebook as well. Um, reach out and just say, Hey, I'd love to love to help out because the more volunteers we have, the better. Yeah. Look, I, I've got no doubt you'll, you'll get a wealth of support uh, from the community. They're, they're a volunteering bunch, the trail runners. So yeah, potentially more than the skateboarding community. I'm not sure. <laughs> <laughs> no, hey, Definitely not, more than the breakdancing community though. I, I guarantee you that. I think you're right. We won't we won't throw shade on the uh, skateboarders or the break dancers, both of which I've I've done. I remember break dancing to Michael Jackson's Bad Album back when I was a, a young kid. Actually, it's probably Thriller at that time. I'm 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 being a bit too kind to myself by saying bad. It's <laughs> <laughs> impressive. We'll have to look at those moves at some point. Uh, <laughs> I guess speaking of embarrassing yourself, um, we, we spoke earlier about you, you having two two girls and. And fronting up the organisation, fathers, fathers of only girls. I think I believe that's the the name of the organisation. Before before we get into what what that means, is it is there something true about the rumour that endurance athletes only have female children? <laughs> uh, you know what? Just because you've said it, and I'm sure you've quoted it from some respectable journal of some kind and some very qualitative uh, quantitative study. Um, I'm going to say yes. So I think, um, you know, uh, we'll go with, we'll go with a bit of pseudoscience in there and say, yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, no, look, I, Fathers of Girls, uh, of Only Girls um, is a, an organization I'm really, really proud of. Um, I was lucky enough to kind of become one of the founding fathers of that organization back um, in 2016. Um, and, uh, and since then, we've kind of grown it to a you know a community of thousands um, we had our lunch our big uh, fathers of girls charity lunch on saturday um, which uh, is an opportunity for for me to catch up with people and to um, perhaps have a red wine or, or too many in the afternoon um, sun and uh, you know i'm still paying for that today my run my run this morning was not um, not exceptional but uh, you know we raised you know tens of thousands of dollars for our, our charity partner named confident girls um, that provides uh, through netball, um, you know, uh, support to people, uh, particularly, well, all women, uh, young women that are, are doing it tough around Australia. Um, and we bring together fathers that, you know, have only girls and uh, really try and talk to them and, and, and help them to engage with their kids um, as a modern father would. And you know, we say with, when we say a modern father, it's a father that doesn't, just like a trail cowboy, doesn't step back, you know, from a challenge. You know, and uh, it's a good challenge. You know, having having daughters is an amazing amazing opportunity for for a uh, a father and a man to you know to learn um, to be you know a better person themselves, and also you know connect with um, you know uh, people you know the uh, females and and women in a way that you know it's, sometimes it's tough to do as as a male um, in life unless you really really work work at it or or you know have the opportunity to have uh, women in your life throughout the house. Um, mm. You know, and I've got. I've got four in mine. I've got uh, my wife, Lauren, my two daughters, Addison and Tyler, and, and a gorgeous little uh, Chihuahua poodle um, dog uh, named Tilly. So 
I'm, I'm surrounded by them. Well and truly outnumbered. And, <laughs> <laughs> and I, look, I feel like that uh, being outnumbered is teaching me something new every day. That's for sure. But I, I guess one of the uh, the points you've made within the father of only girls is just to not push those those girls away too far when they sort of reach that you know early teenage years, so that that gap isn't you know too far to bridge when they eventually come back to you in their twenties and thirties. Do you have any strategies for uh, someone who's about to have that age of a daughter? Yeah, yeah, I think um, yeah that that idea of, of never stepping back is uh, is an interesting one, and and the like the people that are part of the fathers of girls have talked pretty at length about that one in in particular, and the the concept is just to to never put yourself in a position where the gap between you and your daughter. Um, um, emotionally and from a connection standpoint ever becomes too far apart um, because you lose sight of one another. And if you lose sight of one another, you know, uh, emotionally and, you know, in a, in a connective way, it's very hard to, to kind of close that, close that gap. Um, you know, young women are running at a, at a uh, pace in life that um, us as fathers, you know, a can under completely understand can only empathize with, but also are, are probably in a different you know, time or generation in our life, step in our life to be able to really completely understand and connect with um, fully unless we make a really deliberate effort. And so I think one of the, one of the, one of the probably big things that I'd say as a takeaway is maintain the magic um, at all times, find ways to just you know, make days, you know, make, have every opportunity to create some magic between you and, daughter, you and your daughter because that, that magic and that connection um, is really what keeps that gap narrow. Um, and it, it doesn't mean that you're sitting there behind your daughter, you know, watching over every moment of every day, because that's a great way to actually create the gap. Mm. Um, but it does mean that you're, if they need you, you know, you're just a step away and you're always kind of being able to stay within one step away so that you're always there to support. And that, that little magic, that magic that kind of connects you is something that just keeps that one step away as opposed to, you know, 10 feet away. Mm-hmm. Love it, mate. That's great. Very good. I'll uh, I'll put that into practice ASAP, <laughs> mate. Uh, one one final point I want to sort of touch on and, and bring back both your both your loves, I guess, trail running and sustainability together. Um, we, we've sort of seen a, a bit of a curve with triathlon sports and mountain biking, where they've they've reached you know huge huge popularity, and, and then definitely we, we've seen a decline in in that popularity over. Know, the last decade you know the participation rates and the amount of races out there are definitely not anywhere near where they were in the 90s 2000s for both of those sports um trail running seems to be on, on a continuous upward slope at the moment um but the, the, the fear is that we we may follow the same sort of pattern um and and there are some conversations being had this weekend around ultra trail australia which is you know having having its problems um, and, and we won't go too far into that, I, I suppose. But how, how do you think trail running in general maintains that trajectory of popularity and growth? Yeah, that's a that's a really that's a complex question. And you you said Ultra Trail Australia, and that is immediately what came to my mind. Being a, a strong follower um, of you know that race as being my very my very first kind of ultra whole hundred kilometer trail race. Um, it was it was uh, pretty confronting to read through the. The comments within you know within there um we won't dwell on that every every sport and i think every um 
uh, every challenge and every challenge in life and every, you know, everything that we kind of confront in life is going to go through ups and, you know, ups and downs um, and, and through a natural kind of cycle that um, has supporters and detractors and new entrants and new exits and all of, you know, all of those kind of things in life. I think one of the biggest things um, that hold these types of, these types of challenges together and let's, let's, we'll use sport run, trail running as the, you know, as the contextual kind of thing that we discuss um, is the community around it. And the that becomes the glue that really solidifies around, um, you know, how it progresses, you know, from, you know, whether it's in its infancy as a new sport, which trail running really is in a growth phase, but realistically it's still in its infancy as a, as a, um, you know, as a kind of a global sport. Um, but the, the strength of the community around whatever the activity is, is really what um, I think probably helps it proliferate and to grow and to grow in such a way as it, um, as it has the opportunity to see more and more sunlight. Um, and I think the challenge, the challenge in new communities, um, whenever they hit a point of um, kind of that next level of growth where they're going to you know, accelerate up to the next, let's, and let's use, mount, let's use mountains as an example here. So when you're climbing up, climbing up in a mountain, um, you know, regardless of the size of the mountain, you're probably going to get to some kind of plateau and then find a little bit more until you get to the top. So you're going to go through these little plateaus where it, you, know, you get to the next level and you have to get to the next level, the next level. When you hit those little breather points, it's almost where you need to take stock of what the key things are to helping you achieve that final goal to get to the top of the mountain. Mm. And I think the trail running is at one of those breather points right now where you can see you can see the community around it starting to have a bit of angst around this, the pace of growth, the professionalization of it, the marketing and the money coming into it, um, the uh, you know reduction in the amount of grassroots events and the more kind of you know um, commercialization of events. All of those things are like get us to a point where we have to just actually take stock mm -hmm. of what we really want to get out of the sport and what um, you know I guess what the sport wants to wants to provide to us in terms of value. Mm -hmm. And I think. Where we are, where we hit right now is we've got a point where not everyone probably sees the sport producing or on a trajectory towards producing the same value um, as it did five, 10 years ago for people. Whereas it was just, you know, grab a water bottle out of your cupboard or, you know, um, you know, a cup and, you know, go run on the trails in, a, in an old singlet and pair of, you know, boardies, you know, which it, it was years ago, you know, very, very grassroots and organic. Now it's, you know, $250, $300 Hoka shoes and Solomon packs and, you know, $1,000 race entries and all of those things. It's really changed. And the value that people are attributing to it and getting from it um, is, is changing as well. Mm. And that's confronting for people. And to get to the next step up the mountain, we've actually probably got to confront that head on and say, okay, as a community, what do we see as the value proposition for the sport? How do we make sure that that is is held by people, you know, even if it's just a basic set of principles. Um, and I think when you get to that point and you get some kind of um, agreement around it, then you can, you can push forward. Um, but it's going to be, it'll be, it's growing pains. It's going to be a challenge point where just like a father of girls never can't step back from it. That's mm -hmm. why, you know, you don't want to see, don't want to see the community and the people that have been there for a long time, you know, kind of really getting down on the sport because that's when the step back happens and that's when the sport will continue to go in one direction. Well, a bunch of the, the community goes in another and the fracture will happen. Mm, yeah, for sure. And, and, and I guess I hope those conversations are had before people start to vote with their feet in certain ways 
um, it, it was just it, it was an interesting perspective going up to to Blackhall the other week and and how much of a, a community based event that was by comparison with some of the bigger events and uh, just like you say the, the the value proposition there you know you're still paying the same amount for the race you still got to buy the three hundred dollar hawkers all that sort of jazz but uh, I think the the overreach is is probably the difficult sort of part and something we need to be a little bit wary of. Uh, in terms of you know, more participants doesn't necessarily mean better value in a better event sometimes. So I think we need to find our, our place. Uh, we, we can't be a 40,000 strong New York marathon style event. We just don't have the environment to support that. So I think, yeah, we need to find our, uh, our, our level of human participation in these, uh, these remote areas, I guess, is one of the big things for me. Yeah, and that's a great point. The sustainability side is not just the sustainability of the community and the um, the growth of the sport or the the value the sport provides, but you're exactly right. It's the it's the environmental sustainability and social impacts. You know, just as much every community that we go through and run through has a social impact. You know, um, people go to coffee shops, uh, you know, and, and spend more money in a local community like Blackall, um, but they're also out running on the streets at six a.m. in the morning past houses and you know. And people that you know may not be used to that race more than once a year, or may have just moved into the neighborhood. So there's a social impact, and you hit the trails, and you know trail runners are you know I think very conscious. Most are very very conscious about the environment that they're lucky enough to um, to be able to experience for whatever period of time they happen to be running on the trails. So having that respect for for um, uh, the natural environment and the the impact on the local communities, the social impact. Um, are two aspects of, of trail running that I think if we get right and we combine that with, with um, uh, the building of a strong community base mm. um, are probably some of the secret sauce behind um, turning this sport into, you know, an even more awesome sport than it is right now. Yeah, yeah I agree. Totally. And, and I can certainly see that upward trajectory continuing through to, you know, the culmination at the 2032 Brisbane Olympics. I'm, uh, I'm backing you in from way out here, Mike. <laughs> no, I appreciate it. And and I've say this to all the all the guys that we talk to and all the all the working group members, you know, when it really comes down to it, we've got a bunch of um checkpoints in our race mm -hmm. um to 2032. And um we're aiming to finish because you know a, a good trail cowboy always finishes what they started. Um, but we may find we may find that um you know potentially our race only gets so far, you know, and that's okay. Um, number one, the number one mountain we're going to climb in this race, the first checkpoint we're going to get to is that national body um, and bringing together all the stakeholders so they've all got a voice uh, and, and that we find a way to be able to present that voice on a national stage. When we get there, you know, then then we've got our ticket to play, you know, to um, to really kind of push for that um, that future Brisbane 2032 dream. Fantastic. And make sure you wear that uh, Western States belt buckle to the meeting, mate. I think that'll get you across the line. I, I almost don't take it off. My wife has to actually make me, you know, not bring it into the into the bed at night. So uh. <laughs> that's a mistake. That's a mistake. <laughs> it's been wonderful to chat, and uh, yeah, I, I applaud the ambition and I, I, all my very best for the for the coming sort of months and years with the, with the process and the campaign. Um, yeah, yeah, I'm sure the trail running community is well and truly behind you and. Uh, yeah, we'll get to that finish line for sure. Yeah, I'm absolutely looking forward to, um, you know, kind of continuing to drive this community forward and see how far we get down the trail, knowing that, um, you know, as far as we get, uh, 
you know, as far as we should get. So it's exciting times for everyone. And thanks very much for having me on the podcast. I've, you know, I'm really looking forward to um, connecting with the community and, you know, it's going to be fun times ahead. Fantastic, Mike. Thanks a lot for your time. Thanks, Paul.